amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Ten, nine. We choose to go to the moon. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing. Three. Not because they are easy, two, but because they are hard. One, zero. KFI presents. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Cool Space News. With your host, Rod Pyle. Hello and welcome to another Moonth episode of Cool Space News. It's the conclusion of NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine's address to the International Space Development Conference in Washington, D.C. last week. But before we get to the NASA bonanza, some Cool Space headlines. Red Rover, Red Rover. Jet Propulsion Laboratory is making serious progress on their Mars 2020 rover. Just a few days ago, they posted images of the wheels being mounted to the Martian dune buggy. And in case you're wondering, these aren't the same wheel design used on the Curiosity rover from 2012, to which the 2020 machine is roughly identical. These are redesigned versions. Curiosity's wheels have been chewed on and torn by the Martian terrain, as we've seen in many photographs. So the 2020 rover's wheels are dramatic redesign. While still cylindrical, duh, and about the size and shape of a beer keg, they have redesigned cleats and a different internal structure to make them far more robust while still being lightweight. Another photo released in early June showed the forward mast of the 2020 rover raised. This is the mast on which the main camera and sensing devices not located on the robotic arm are attached. Full integration of the mast, which means the final installation of sensors and wiring, continued for another week. Mars 2020 is coming together, and soon all they'll need is a formal name for the robotic explorer, which will be determined via a nationwide elementary school contest, similar to the way in which they have named all previous Mars rovers. May the best STEM student win. Calling Artemis, calling Artemis. NASA recently announced its intention to have its future lunar cargo delivery system built by private industry, and on June 14th took the first step towards selecting companies to do so by issuing a solicitation for these companies to make preliminary comments concerning the project. The awardees will deliver cargo, science instrumentation, and other supplies to the moon in advance of landing American astronauts there by 2024. The space agency also noted that the contracts will eventually extend to the delivery of other infrastructure elements, meaning the materials and services that will enable extended stays in the moon. It appears this time it's real, folks, and none too soon. Our last visit with humans to the moon was a half century ago. Stay tuned. Space War. The orbital arms race seems to be heating up. Of the 1,300 operational satellites currently in orbit, a large number of them are military in nature and even many civilian satellites support services that are vital to national security. From GPS to operation of the American power grid to stealthy orbital observation, satellites are critical to warfighting and are therefore a prime target for enemies in the United States. As India's recent test of an anti-satellite system shows, the spacefaring powers continue to hone their skills in the interdiction and potential destruction of their enemies' orbital assets. This is not a news story. During the Cold War, both the U.S. and Soviet Union experimented with everything from orbiting mines to laser beams 
to disable their adversaries' satellites, even testing systems to spray paint satellite camera lenses. The new orbital arms race will likely depend on kinetic weapons, impactors that can destroy enemy satellites, and both ground and space-based jamming and disabling energy weapons. It's an evolving story and one that can ultimately become incredibly destabilizing. And this story has no snappy happy ending, I'm afraid. Just a waste of money, technology, and resources for a war that we all hope will never be fought. And that's all the news that's fit to print this week. Onward! In the interest of time and brevity, which, as you know, is not my strong suit, I'm going to progress right to the second half of our presentation by Jim Bridenstine, the NASA Administrator on Current Plans Concerning America's Return to the Moon. Take it away, Jim. I'm the first administrator in history that has, you know, everybody, you walk around NASA, everybody has that moment in time they know exactly where they were when Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped foot on the moon. I see a bunch of people nodding their heads. I don't have that memory. I wasn't around back then. And there's a lot of us in this room that we weren't around back then. The Apollo generation was not our generation. We love it. It changed history. It changed the direction of the world. We love the Apollo generation, but we weren't there. This is our generation. This is our time. We have opportunities to do things today that we couldn't have done in the 1960s and 1970s. So know this, we are the Artemis generation. We need to be communicating about the Artemis generation. This time when we go to the moon, we're going to go sustainably. Another big difference between now and 1969, this time when we go to the moon, we're going to go with commercial partners. We're going to go with international partners. There's more international partners now in the, in the world than ever before in human history, and they all want to go to the moon. The United States of America sent 12 men to the moon from 1969 to 1972. We're the only country that's ever done it. Other countries want their shot. And friends, we can partner with them to achieve more on the moon than ever before. The Artemis generation is who we are. This is what we need to be communicating on. That this time when we go to the moon, it's very different. We're going forward to the moon. We're not going back to the moon, we're going forward to the moon. This time we're going to stay. A sustainable program that's going to have the ability to use our very diverse, very talented astronaut corps and send the first woman to the surface of the moon. So with that, thank you for having me. It's great to be here. And Greg, I'll open it up to a few questions. Is that all right? Gentlemen here in the front. You mentioned the far side of Mars. Now, were you, did you mean that literally? Because I thought also Mars was visible. Also, parts of Mars were visible from Earth. Yeah, so um, you know, when yeah, we've landed on Mars eight times, every time it requires you know, communications, relays, and things like that. So when you land on the far side of the moon, I talked to, um, uh, look, landing on the far side of the moon is, is not easy. But what does it require? It requires a communications relay. Um, we could do that. We just haven't made those investments at this point. W what I was doing there was kind of making a point that um, ultimately 
uh, we're not falling behind at all. We have every bit of the capability necessary. If we wanted to land on the far side of the moon, we could do it. And uh, I think we'll have that ability to do it with humans, as a matter of fact, when we get the gateway underway. Thank you for the question. So in the uh, House Science and Space and Technology Committee meeting, subcommittee meeting in March 13th, Representative Waltz asked a question of Peggy Whitson. Did she think that we should have more commercial inputs into the planning for how we get to the moon, what we do to the, yeah, on the moon, basically? And she thought that would be a good idea. Do you see any opportunities for getting more of the small emerging commercial space sector really involved in that planning up front rather than waiting till there's a plan and then how can they help execute that plan? Yeah, absolutely. And when you look at um, a couple of things, that's how we're doing the CLIPS program, the Commercial Lunar Payload Services, small payloads to the surface of the moon. We are, we are not telling anybody how to do it. We're saying we have a requirement to get this science payload to this location who can deliver it, and we're not ask, we're interested in how they're doing it, but we're letting them figure out how to do it. And I think that's a big difference between uh, the traditional way NASA has done business and the new way of doing business. It's also true that if you look at the lander, we talk about going from the gateway down to the surface of the moon and back to the gateway. Um, there's a lot of different ways to do that. Some providers would say you need a transfer element to get to low lunar orbit, then you need a descent module, then you need an ascent module. Other providers say, actually, no, we can go direct to the surface and then direct back to Gateway. So again, we are not prescribing how to do it. We want to make sure that if we're going to help you develop this capability, we want to make sure that it's doable. Uh, so our engineers and our technicians will be embedded in the process. Um, but at the end of the day, we're letting people create their own designs so that we can take advantage of it. The other thing is, again, we want them to put their own skin in the game. We want their own investment to be involved because at the end of the day, we want to be a customer, one customer of many. One of the things I think that might help you understand how we're having this change of philosophy is that if you look at the entire architecture with Gateway, it's open architecture. So the way we do data and communications and avionics and docking and life support. All of these things are going to be available to the public online. So if you operate a small company or if you're the leader of a small country, you have the opportunity to build your own lander, build your own tug, build your own transfer vehicle. Any part you want to plug into, it's available and you can do it. Now we can't create a traffic jam at the gateway, so there's going to have to be rules. But at the end of the day, the goal is for it to be an open architecture so we can get more activity and more support than we've ever been able to get before. So the answer is, not only are we looking for their input, we're going to open it up to them so they can do all kinds of things uh, as long as they're being safe. Uh, we're going to open it up to them to participate in all kinds of ways that have never been done before. Thank you, sir. Uh, the whole vision of Return to the Moon to stay. I haven't heard a lot of elaboration about the latter part, to stay. Uh, at this point, I'm not sure if we, it would be very ambitious to try to have like a permanently manned base, for instance, and I'm not sure we really need one at this point. So what is the National Space Council's thinking right now, what that means to stay? Good question. So right now the goal is speed. So we want to get 
the first woman and the next man to the moon in 2024, basically within five years, which I think is, uh, that's, that's fast, but it's doable. Um, that's the goal speed. We want st- sustainability by 2028. So think of it as two phases. The first phase is getting there, making sure that we're retiring the political risk as soon as possible. Second phase is developing the sustainable architecture that would include utilization of the gateway in new and unique ways with international partners and with commercial partners. And by the way, commercial partners will be there from the beginning because that's the only way we can achieve the end state we're trying to achieve. Um, But it's also important when you think about sustainability, when we get there, it's not going to be a permanent presence of humans on the surface of the moon from 2024 onward. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a permanent human access to any part of the moon anytime we want. But that is different than a permanent presence on the surface of the moon. It's important to note that we're also going to have continual presence on the moon with landers and rovers and robots. And a lot of those missions will be controlled from the gateway. So presence on the moon, presence around the moon, access to any part of the moon at any time, all of that is what we mean by the words sustainable. Now, do we want to have a moon base where we have a permanent human presence on the moon? Absolutely. Are we going to get that done by 2028? Probably not. But we got to get, we got to get the first elements done here. Then we can talk about how we build that base on the moon. Through the CLIPS program, um, are there opportunities or fundings in place to allow universities to send payloads, experiments, or anything to train new engineers? Yes. So right now we've got payloads that are NASA payloads, scientific payloads going to the surface of the moon. Uh, But yes, we want to open it up to other payloads that would be university, you know, principal investigator kind of driven opportunities on the surface of the moon. So we're not there yet. But absolutely, that's on the agenda. Then it can be um, NASA benefiting from universities or private institutions doing their research. uh, And then the partnership can grow, where we could put maybe our payload on with somebody else's payload and share the costs. I mean, the goal here is to spread the costs. Thanks. TJ Cooney from I Need More Space. A question about the lander, the initial ask for the lander, is there a minimum crew requirement that NASA is instituting, two, three, four, and also uh, what is the minimum amount of time on this initial lander you're hoping to stay on the surface? So um, number one, we're not defining that at this point. Uh, We believe that there are going to be a number of different companies that propose a number of different options, all of which would be unique that we will be able to select from. Um, So some solutions might have two, some might have four. Um, we, we, haven't, we haven't said what it's going to be yet. Here's the thing. If we believe we can get an accelerated schedule by steering people to a two-person lander, we will probably do that. Not guaranteed, but we will probably. The goal is to land the next. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Man and the first woman on the South Pole of the Moon in 2024. That's the highest priority. 
So anything we can do to achieve that, we, we want to make happen. Um, so that was your, your first question. What was your second question? Oh, the duration on the surface. So uh, initially when we get there, uh, we're talking about a matter of hours. We're proving a capability, proving a technology. To be clear, we're going to be on the South Pole, which is a milestone in itself in human history. Um, there's a lot of work to do on the South Pole to get a really good understanding of the regolith and the ice and how it's mixed and what else is there. Um, so in a matter of hours on the South Pole of the Moon, the, there will be plenty of very meaningful work to get done um, and then get back to the gateway. But the first mission is, um, is not, the goal is, again, we're not trying to set up a camp on the South Pole of the Moon. We're trying to prove that we can get there, that we can do meaningful work, and we can get back. After 2024 or 28, uh, what do you see the pathway, architecture, and timing of to put humans on the surface of Mars? Are there any plans for that already? So there, there's a lot of different ideas on that, and I'm sure for every person in this room, there's probably a different idea. Um, the, the, here's what we know. We know we're going to need some kind of orbital platform around Mars, and we're going to need, of course, a very unique landing system for Mars. The moon and Mars are very different because Mars has an atmosphere, so we have to have an entry, descent, and landing system that is specifically unique. But as much as possible, we want the architecture at the moon to be replicable at Mars. So what we're learning with the moon, we're learning how to operate that orbital platform, gateway. We're also learning how to do an ascent vehicle. There's no reason an ascent vehicle on Mars has to be different than an ascent vehicle on the moon. But as far as the entry, descent, and landing, that's going to be a unique capability. Um, and then, of course, the, the, the other big challenge is when you're in deep space for months and months at a time to get to Mars, uh, what does it do to the human condition? Uh, the radiation of deep space, being in a microgravity environment for that long, are all of the effects on human physiology from microgravity, are they reversed when you're in a gravity well that's one-third that of Earth, namely Mars? So these are all things that we need to learn on the moon. Um, so... When we talk about going to Mars, um, you know, there, there's a lot of trade space there, I would say. Uh, but certainly it's something we're thinking about. And to the extent that we're developing the architecture at the moon, we want as much of it as possible to be replicable at Mars. Yep. Uh, Gary Barnhart, Extraordinary Innovative Space Partnerships, Inc. You speak about going forward to the moon, making it sustainable, a partnership with you know, commercial uh, you know, industry with universities, perhaps even nonprofit organizations. But in order to realize that vision, you have to be able to provide for the infrastructure and the utilities, the power, the communications, the data, the navigation. Is NASA prepared to step up and help orchestrate making that real? Absolutely. You, you can't do it without that. So the, the answer is yes. Um, you know, we, we, there, there's a lot of different programs um, that NASA has had on its drawing board for many years that require infrastructure, as you've identified. Um, and I think there's a lot of ways we can tie those programs into this particular program. Um, so the answer is yes. Oh, once we land on Mars, so oh. to speak, do you believe that we will be able to sustain life and women could potentially um, birth on Mars? Oh, my goodness. Um, I don't think we're going to be, um, I don't know that that's on the, on the agenda. 
to procreate on Mars. Uh, but, you know, it, again, if you're going to establish a, a colony, and I'm not talking in the, you know, I'm not talking in the mid-2030s here, <laughs> um, but eventually there's going to have to, there's going to have to be an ability to sustain life for long periods of time um, on, on Mars. Um, so, yes, that sounds very science fiction. It might be 50 or 100 years away, uh, but, but certainly it, it's something to consider and think about. What is the plan to deal with uh, the resource rush that there might be at the South Pole in terms of the peaks of eternal light and the water and other resources that we might find there? Are we going to be cooperating with the Chinese, competing? It's a, it's a great question, and I don't have a crystal ball. I can tell you this. Um, the Outer Space Treaty is very clear that you cannot appropriate the moon for national sovereignty. That is very clear. But what does that mean? That means that China can't own the moon. The United States of America can't own the moon. According to the 1967 Outer Space Treaty, you cannot appropriate the moon for national sovereignty. Now, that being said, when I was in the House of Representatives, we did the Commercial Space Launch Competitiveness Act. And in that bill, I and others thought it was important to define property rights from the perspective of resources. If you attach your labor and your investment to extracting resources from the moon, you as a private individual, as a private company, as a private nonprofit, whatever it is, you have the rights to those resources. That does not mean that the moon has been appropriated for national sovereignty, but you would have the rights to the resources you extract. Um, so we clearly defined that in the law. Basically, we used the law to define the Outer Space Treaty for the United States, to interpret the Outer Space Treaty for the United States of America. That bill, by the way, passed the entire House of Representatives in a bipartisan way. It passed the entire Senate in a bipartisan way, and it went to President Obama's desk for signature, and he signed it. So this is a... This is, I think, a strong bipartisan consensus that the resources of the moon can be utilized by humanity, but there is also still very strong consensus that you cannot appropriate the moon for national sovereignty as, would, as is required in the Outer Space Treaty. So um, I, I will tell you, as a Navy pilot, we, we have a lot of experience flying in international airspace over international waters, and we have rules about doing that. The rules... Um, follow the rules that come from ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, and those rules require us to operate what we call due regard. So if somebody challenges me and says that I'm doing something inappropriate, I say I'm a sovereign United States aircraft operating due regard in international airspace. And, and at that point, what that means is I'm not messing with you, you're not messing with me, we stay out of each other's way, and, we, and, and we're able to operate due regard. When we go to the moon to extract resources, I think those principles probably should apply. There is no regulation on this. There is no law on this. But I think that it's probably appropriate for us to start thinking about it. Um, and if this group, this very impressive group, wants to start you know, contemplating how we might operate due regard on the moon, that would be, I think, appropriate. Um, the due regard 
principle. I mean, I've talked to a number of private companies who want to land on the moon, and I've <laughs> encouraged some of them to name their lander due regard for this purpose. <laughs> so anyway, um, that, yeah, that's a good question. It's something we need to be thinking about. Uh, this is about the uh, little details. Um, in regards to the infrastructure of the gateway, are inflatables under consideration for part of that assembly? So, um, so we, we have had a number of different companies propose solutions, and a lot of that's proprietary, so I don't want to get into who proposed what. Um, but I'll just say this. Um, if it's a good solution, we will look at it, consider it, and make a decision. And there are good solutions out there that include inflatables and that don't include inflatables. Cool. Um, I, I want to I close with uh, a kind of a final thought, if that's okay. Because the, the folks in this room are very involved in the space industry, and everybody has a very important role to play. I, wa I want to put, put together some thoughts that you can take forward and communicate to the world at large. A lot of times people ask me, why are we spending money on space exploration anyway? I hear that a lot from people who are skeptics about what we're trying to achieve. I want to give you some thoughts about the value of space exploration going back to the Apollo program. I know we're, we're, we're streaming this, I think, on, online right now. There's some people that are watching this online who get their internet broadband from space. Space communications are a critical capability for humanity, and if you come from Oklahoma, as I do, if you come from rural Oklahoma, internet broadband from space is probably the only internet broadband you might have access to. But it's not just internet broadband. Some people have direct TV or Dish Network or XM Radio. All of these space-based communication capabilities were born from this little agency that we call NASA. And, by the way, it's predecessors to NASA, because NASA was only created in 1958. <laughs> We're a very young agency when you think about it. The other important thing to mention is it's not just communications, it's navigation. People here understand GPS and how it works. This is a technology that was mastered, again, by this little agency called NASA. The way we communicate, the way we navigate, the way we produce food. We are sensing the Earth right now in every part of the electromagnetic spectrum. And from that, we are proving, in fact, I know there's people here from California, we are proving with a, with, with a partnership with the University of California Cooperative Extension that we can increase crop yields while decreasing water use by 25%, critically important in California, and preserving the nitrates in the soil. So the way we, and, and by the way, we are just getting started on this. We are going to be increasing crop yields all around the world, feeding more the world than ever before because of this little agency called NASA. The way we communicate, the way we navigate, the way we produce food. I come from Oklahoma. The way we produce energy cleanly, we are able to very quickly and rapidly identify methane gas that is, being, that is coming out of the earth the energy companies love this. Why? Because then they don't get fined. If we can identify it for them early, fix their problem, then they're not going to be fined by any other government regulator. The way we produce energy, the way we understand weather, critically important. A lot of people don't realize NASA builds all of the weather satellites for NOAA and the National Weather Service. 
all of the, the, the tools that we have to understand where that thunderstorm is going to be, where that tornado is going to be driven by this little agency called NASA. The way we understand climate and how it is changing is because of NASA. We think about, in this country, how we do disaster relief for people all over the world, capabilities developed by NASA. The way we do national security and defense, in some cases, NASA provides capabilities that defense can use, and they have. Most of the time, defense creates capabilities that NASA takes advantage of, namely uh, maybe some ICBMs that launched Alan Shepard, for example. But the bottom line is this. This little agency that has less than one-half of 1% 1 of the federal budget and at its peak for a very short period of time had as much as 4% of the federal budget, this little agency has transformed the human condition. It has elevated the human condition in ways that are not measurable. The return on investment that the American taxpayer gets for what it puts into NASA is huge. It is immense. And when we think about Artemis, and the generation 30 years from now, 60 years from now, 90 years from now, what they are going to receive from our generation, the Artemis generation, we don't even know right now the benefits they're going to get from the Artemis generation. But I'll tell you this, what we're receiving right now because of the Apollo generation is magnificent, and they will receive the same benefits from our investment today. And friends, it's not just about Tang and Velcro. It's so much more than that. So make sure you're getting these messages out. Thank you all for having me. Let's get the, uh, the Voyager group up here, the right. Voyager circle. Thank you, Jim Bridenstine, for that informative report. I'll be back next week with another installment in our Muth series with a fascinating interview with the captain of Space Enterprise. Don't you dare miss it. And remember, if you have questions you'd like answered on the podcast, wander over to Twitter and send them to at CoolSpaceNewsAM. That's at CoolSpaceNewsAM. And we'll see that you're taken care of. Come on, you know you want to. Until next time, always remember, be humble for you were made of Earth, be noble for you were made of stars. See you next time. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com.